Welcome to the Future Champions podcast in this episode of The Gospel According to Mayor George Seymour. In this episode, I sat down with the Fraser Coast Mayor to chat about leadership, fear and conflict. I was privileged to work with George for eight years when I served as a counsellor and I really enjoyed and appreciated the opportunity to speak to him at length. George, you've chosen the Story Bank in Maryborough to hold this interview. Can you tell me why? I love this building. I love historic buildings. This bank building from the 1870s in the heart of Maryborough was purchased by the council a few years ago. We acquired it because it's the birthplace of P.L. Travers, the author who wrote a number of books, including the Mary Poppins books. Uh, we purchased it to recognize her legacy and to create a tourism attraction as well as a building that encourages childhood literacy and love of storytelling. So I love this building. I love what it's become in, in terms of um, a facility for young people, for children, to learn about Mary Poppins and P.L. Travers, the Maribor Connection, but much broadly about storytelling. Well, thank you for joining us on the Future Champions podcast. Today I want to talk about three subjects, one being fear, the other being leadership, and the other conflict. And in your role, you're certainly uh, well-versed in all of those. Mm-hmm. Yes, some more than others. Yes. Uh, so firstly, I want to talk about fear. And you were a lawyer before becoming a politician. Can you tell me about that experience, particularly in your first court case and, and, and how that transpired? Yeah, um, being a lawyer was a lot more stressful than being a politician, actually. I think it's because you are so directly responsible for your clients' interests, whether it's staying out of jail, doing a you know, getting a good outcome from a deal or being able to see their children. It's a very scary process to be so entrusted I mean, with somebody's interests and to actually have to walk into the court and represent them in front of the judge, uh, the other side who are trying to get an outcome directly opposite to what you are. So it's, a, it's like you're on a tightrope up at the top of the circus. It's um, a very terrifying experience that, you know, any minute something could go wrong. Do you remember the feeling you felt leading up to your first trial? Yeah, it was, um, I knew I'd prepared well. It was, preparation is so important when you're going into what's going to be an adversarial situation where you're both looking for cracks in the other side's arguments. So I knew that I was very well prepared. I actually believed in my client's case, which um, isn't essential, but it's important if you're going to be arguing, putting forward a case. And I... um, you know, I, I saw a path for the outcome we wanted. How did you feel the morning of the trial? I'm sure I would have been extremely nervous. Um, like I said, it was the most stressful job I ever had was being a lawyer. Just be more, And often it was more to do with the client, with the client had a lot of money on the line or if the client could potentially go to jail. I internalized their own fear. So I would often, you know, day to day, I would be worried about their interests. So I remember going to court that day, very worried about the outcome. And so, but I, I felt good knowing that I prepared. How do you deal with that stress, particularly when you're standing up in a, in a court in front of somebody who, if you do make a mistake, will make you aware of it, particularly a judge or a magistrate, they can be quite cutting with their, with their directness. You feel a lot more confident if you know you're prepared. If you haven't prepared well, then it's about saying as little as possible, I guess. It's about leaving as little opportunity for attack, not, not going out on a limb, I suppose. You then moved into politics, I think in 2012 was your first election. Mm-hmm. How did you feel in that 2012 election where you're running as a councillor? 
running up against, I guess, some really big personalities who are probably very open in their, I guess, criticism towards other people and potentially could have been quite aggressive in their approach. I was very nervous about being in such an adversarial environment. I don't like conflict. I actually really don't like elections. I was seeking the outcome of getting elected. I certainly um, tried to just focus on what I could focus on, though. There, you know, I knew that my opponents would be attacking me. I knew that there would be a lot of outside issues um, which would affect the result. But I knew I'd studied politics. I'd been around politics for a long time. And I, from my understanding, from what I'd seen, the people that almost always win are the ones that work the hardest, the ones that put in the most hours. And I knew that was the one thing that was in my control. If I got up the earliest, if I stayed out the latest, if I door knocked the most houses, I would win. So that was my approach is I would work as hard as I possibly could. And how hard did you work in that 2012 election? I worked extremely hard. I actually was hospitalized. Um, I collapsed one night. I just fainted when we were in the kitchen. Um, and because, because I'd been out working all day, because of that, um, I had to lose my license for a little while. There's a law called Jet's Law where if you have an unexplained fainting, you, um, you lose your license for, I think it might have been three months or something, which really... Um, was a concern for me, not being able to drive in the middle of an election campaign, but fortunately um, my wife Melissa was able to help a lot in that regard. So that, that obviously took a lot of dedication then. I mean, that's a lot of work to put yourself uh, in, in physical harm. Yeah, I, I wanted, because I, there was a window there of getting elected. The local council is only every four years. I knew that if I didn't get elected in 2012, it would be a very long four years. I really wanted to serve in public office, so I threw everything I had at it. And you were quite young and you were coming up against, I guess, a seasoned councillor who was an incumbent mm -hmm. and had a reputation of speaking his mind. Did you feel any sense of intimidation going into that election? I don't think I did. Or he announced quite late he was running. Um, but again, like I really knew that I just had to focus on my own race. I knew that other people would be attacking me. There would be other externalities. But the only thing that would really matter in the end was how hard I worked. And elections are like grand finals, I guess. How did you feel on election night where you realised you'd won? I still remember that night. I remember being in the, um, watching the votes being counted. Then we went driving home. We got a drink at Coast while we waited for our takeaway pizza from Santini's. Uh, it was certainly, um, you know, it was something, a, a moment I'd visualised for, for perhaps 10 years of serving in public office being realised that night. And was it was the feeling as good as you thought it would be i think so um it was uh, you would probably remember the day it rained so hard that day uh it was with the harvey bay there was a huge storm that went through harvey bay on election day um and it was a you know i've, I've worked on elections for many times handing out for other people but it was a, a unique experience you know handing people how to vote cards saying vote one george seymour and you know I, I enjoyed it so in public life now you had to learn to make public decisions that would impact more than yourself or your immediate community or your immediate family. How hard was it to uh, not be fearful of making decisions that could potentially or would definitely make someone happy and another person unhappy? Mm -hmm. the, the, the hard part of the job is the decisions that come to you. The easy decisions are made you know, on desks elsewhere in the council. The hard decisions come to the council. And the thing you really realize immediately is that there will always be somebody against the decision. If you make decision A, one group of people will be against it. If you make decision B, another group will be against it. So you have to 
know that you cannot please everybody all the time. And that's the real difficulty and the fear is that you're going to upset people. Um, I remember we approved a water park and there was concern from nearby people about the parking, the traffic, the noise. But the person who owned the property was actually entitled under the plan, town planning scheme to develop it as a water park. So you've always you know, got a way up you know, different competing interests, but in the end, you know that somebody's going to be upset about the decision. And then moving on from that, how do you deal with the public criticism, particularly, say, in the paper or in, in, in the news, where you're getting, uh, I guess, berated by your community for making a bad decision in their eyes? I, I think you have to know in your heart you're doing the right thing. Know at every day that the decisions you're making are in the best interest of the community. And remember that the, today's paper is tomorrow's rubbish. You know, I can think of so many issues that seemed big at the time, even front page stories that, you know, I was worried about at the time that seemed like the end of the world. And, you know, within hours, it's over. What is your greatest fear from the perspective of a community leader? Mm -hmm. Well, I love being a leader, being on the council, but I'm always cognizant of the fact that we are making decisions that will have effects on the community. And I do worry that we could make the wrong decision and it will be irreversible. I, we, we make decisions about town planning, about resource allocation. And, um, but I think in the end, you know, you've just got to know that at the time you're doing it for the right reasons and respect the process. I've lost so many votes, one to 10 or nine to two, but the, what we have with the council with 11 of us, each with an equal vote, making decisions where we have come from different backgrounds, represent different communities. I think leads to the right decision. I want to give you a topic that uh, and we were on council together for, for a while, eight years. Yes. Um, I, I want to talk about a topic that I feel as though I potentially let community criticism impact my decision at the time I didn't realise, and it's fluoride. Mm -hmm. At the time there were a lot of people, and I don't know if you recall, there were a lot of people lobbying the councillors and they probably weren't from our region mm -hmm. but they were lobbying us trying to push us to make a, a change now at the time i believe that fluoride was a good thing mm -hmm. and at the moment of that vote i was convinced otherwise and i, I guess my greatest fear is, as as a community leader was to make a decision that would have a legacy impact and i guess something like that would do you recall that moment and did you have those same sort of um, deliberations in your mind as to what was the right decision? Yeah, that was a tricky decision um, when we voted to take fluoride out of the water. It is probably one of those aspects which should be left to scientists, not to individual councils. Like I said, there's 11 of us, but, you know, we're, you know, we come with different views and backgrounds. An issue like that of public safety really should be taken out of politics. Um, I remember we were lobbied ferociously by people, you know, from probably all over the world, um, mostly almost all anti-fluoride. It's the kind of issue where, um, you know, the 11 of us elected, none of us had a degree in dental science. So, you know, there's some, there's some types of issues that aren't well suited to electoral politics. You worked for Andrew McNamara, who was the MP for Harvey Bay. Mm -hmm. Uh, for some time and he was also a minister in the state government what did you learn in that time about leadership so that was a really important period for me um, I think it's really important for anybody who wants to be a leader to to 
to, to meet with leaders and to watch them and to learn how um, they interact with the community. Andrew was an extremely intelligent man. Um, and there was that period where he was you know, one, one of the largest public voices in Harvey Bay in our community as the member for Harvey Bay and the minister for environment in the government of Anna Bly. And I learned a lot from that, uh, particularly working for him. I learned about, you know, interacting with community groups, getting around the community, listening to people and raising their concerns. He was a, a great member of Harvey Bay and uh, a minister, but, um, you know, we don't you know he lost that election in 2009. And I, you know, you, you just got to um, remember electoral politics. It's about decisions, people coming and going. What was it in that time that you learned you shouldn't do as a leader? I think I learned that it's really important to stay connected to the community. Um, it's one, it's important to be raising large issues like peak oil or climate change. Um, but it's also important, electoral politics, it's about knowing your community and being in touch with it. And I, that's, you know, I think everyone would agree that's where Andrew went wrong. He was, um, you know, a very good minister, an incredibly intelligent man, a great advocate for Harvey Bay. But, um, you know, I think, as you see in many political careers, um, they end when you lose touch with the community you're elected to serve. As a councillor, you served under two mayors. Mm -hmm. One was Jared O'Connell and the other was Chris Loft. Let's talk about Jared. What did you learn about leadership with him as the mayor? Mm -hmm. Jared um, was and is, you know, a great visionary. His mayorship um, was about the bigger picture, about large issues, um, and he, he certainly had a vision, big and bold vision for the Fraser Coast. And he was very good in the way he ran the council, was keeping the council to um, those higher order issues um, and moving on and then allowing the council to focus on their implementation. So Jared, um, you know, I, I, I'm quite a different mayor to him, but um, I think I learned from him that the importance of getting your vision into documents so it can get progressed. It's about... Um, you know, realizing where you want the community to be going. And then in 2016, Jared lost the election. Mm -hmm. Why do you think he lost? Mm -hmm. That was um, a very interesting election. I think um, Jared, I think that he, 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 there were too many issues during that term where I think he was both ahead of the community on an issue and to the side of it. Um, so, for example, I think he lost a lot of votes about the original Maribor site when he, he wanted to see a part of that um, open space developed into townhouses, which had its argument, you know, about, you know, providing passive surveillance in an area where there was antisocial behavior about economic development and um, riverside living. But then there was a large section of the community, which included me, that didn't want to see the site developed. So in the same way that Wayne Goss picked too many fights you know, on koalas, habitat, and highways, Jared managed to um, start from a really popular position to slowly erode that. And that was because he was in some ways you know, either ahead or to the side of the community on different issues. We've talked before about the heartbeat of a community and it's important for the leaders to listen to that heartbeat and be as close to that heartbeat as possible within their actions. And if they need to speed it up, they do it gradually. Do you think this is something that maybe Jared could have looked at more? Yeah, I think um, you elect a mayor for the times. In terms of myself, I've seen my role as being a very conciliatory leader, 
about trying to unite first the council and the community. Jared um, saw his role and certainly was at the start was about rectifying things that had been lying to the side for too long. His slogan in 2012 was it's time to get things done. So he recognized there was a, a feeling in the community about opening up the foreshore in Harvey Bay to make it more public friendly to try and get more people using it. And you certainly do see it. I mean, people don't people who see the parks filled with people doing all kinds of activities don't necessarily relate that back, you know, 10 years ago when the, they weren't so publicly accessible. So Jared, um, he saw the need to get a lot of things done and that was the right for the time. But um, I think he also missed some of the community cues on what they wanted to see happen. Um, you know, they didn't want all kinds of development like 20 story buildings. They didn't um, want to see that, you know, historic places such as the Memorial Hall at Pi Alba or the original mayor site lost. So then in 2016, we have a, a different mayor and we, uh, Chris Loft was elected as the mayor. What was his leadership style like compared to that of, say, Jared? Mm -hmm. Well, I think so what, you know, I think the community when they were electing Chris was looking for some of, like I said, Jared was very big picture and he stayed away from the small, uh, you know, the implementation stage. And I think what perhaps because there have been so many plans, so many big picture issues without them all coming to fruition, the community elected somebody that they saw who described himself as an operational mayor, not a media mayor. Um, and so they saw in Chris somebody who came from a successful small business background as somebody who could get things done. Why did his mayorship go so wrong so quickly? Well, I think um, a lot of the people who've been elected to the council um, here over the last you know, few elections have come from a small business background, which is a great grounding, a great um, background for coming into business in terms of understanding finances um, and and um, implementing programs. But it also, I don't think, is the best background for going into a collegial group where there's 11 of you. So if you come from a small business background where you're the owner, where you're the managing partner, where what you say instantly can happen, it doesn't necessarily, if you don't change your mindset to go into uh, the council, local government, where you're regulated heavily by statute, um, where you've only got one vote out of 11, there's going to be issues if all the other councillors don't agree with you. So you've come off the back of two very different mayors and now you've got the position of mayor, the, the probably the, the most highly respected position in a community. What learnings did you take from, I guess, Jared and Chris? Mm -hmm. I've learned quite a bit from both of them, seeing you know their successes where I thought and where I think they started to get into difficulty. Uh, from Jared, I think I learned a lot about how to um, public speak. You know, I wish I could be as good a public speaker as Jared. I used to see him in the morning speak to you know a group of um, senior citizens, and then go straight to a business lunch, and then see him speak to children. And he was so, and it was because he was empathetic because he understood who he was talking to, what was interesting to them. Jared was and is an amazing person in that regard, in terms of listening to people and understanding them and wanting to help them. Um, so I think, you know, you know, he was a great mayor. And, and in terms of Chris, you know, Chris was very dogged in terms of getting things done. He would, you know, often you'll get pushback on issues um, and that can, you can second guess yourself. 
um, Chris had a very um, firm set of views and he stuck with them. And, you know, you, you've got to, you know, in life, you've got to have your, your core values and you've got to stick to them. You've uh, gone on as mayor and one of the, I guess, one of the key differences to your mayoralship is how engaged you are with young community leaders. You spend a lot of time at schools. Mm -hmm. um, I did or, before COVID. You did yeah. before COVID, yeah. yes. I say you, 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 you spent a lot of time at schools. You also spent a lot of time at um, sporting clubs, engaging with young people. Is there a common thread of leadership in these young people that you see and you like? Yeah, I try and spend as, as much time as I can um, with, with young people and school leaders. We have um, dep the Deputy Mayor, Jaron Everard, and I regularly have breakfast with the school captains from the different high schools. And I try and get around and sit down with the student councils because, um, you know, I, I want to hear what they have to say. I want to hear what they view. I mean, a lot of the time they'll say they want a Krispy Kreme donuts and, a, um, and an ice skating rink in town. But um, they also talk about wanting to be able to have a playground in the park they can get to easily. Or they, wa they want to know that we're looking for jobs for their parents or that their, um, you know, other relatives who are sick will have good health care system. So it's really important, I think, for all levels of government to listen to young people. They don't get the vote until they're 18, but their opinion is, is so important. I remember um, when I was young, Bill Richardson, he was our congressman. And I remember meeting him and hearing him speak at a company picnic where my father worked. And it felt, um, you know, listening to him, knowing that, you, that somebody who was in Congress was interested in my view, you know, was important for me. So I think, you know, as a community, you know, we need to listen to them. We need to know that, that, that what their thoughts go into our planning, but we also need them to know that they're important. When you were younger, did you have that same civic responsibility and leadership? Absolutely not. Uh, I was not a good student. I was not a student leader. Can you elaborate? Mm -hmm. I didn't become serious in my studies until three years into uni, actually. Um, I wasn't a terribly conscientious student. Um, but I think, um, you know, I always encourage people to go to university. It opens your mind. It expands your horizon. The people you meet, you know, the, the time you have to reflect on ideas and issues. And so, um, you know, whilst I was at uni, I started to get involved in student politics and actually interested in the stuff I was studying. Um, and I think that's really important. Um, you know, I'd, I didn't study very hard at school. When, when did you start getting a passion for social justice and reform? At uni, but I think earlier, um, you know, I've always cared deeply about animals. I've been a vegan for most of my life, so I don't eat animal products or wear animal products. Um, whilst I was at uni, I knew that I wanted to work um, in some sort of social reform basis, you know, whether it was helping homeless people or people um, who needed assistance. So, you know, I've always wanted to work in an area that helps people. And you actually, when you left uni, it wasn't just into politics that you went, you also went into social welfare. I've worked in disability support and I ran the youth homeless shelter in Harvey Bay. So, um, and I imagine that's something I'll do in the future. You know, I don't want to be in politics forever. I'd like to go back and work for, you know, a community organization in some, some capacity in the future. So if a young year 12 student asks you what sort of uh, traits do you want to see in a leader, particularly a young developing leader, what would you tell them? Uh, be yourself, be empathetic. The most important character traits, I think, are kindness and empathy. Understand how, you know, other people are thinking, you know, and, and, and it, it helps you, you know, interact with them and it helps you to help them. 
I, whenever kids ask me, you know, what they should do in the future, I tell them just to do what they believe in. I briefly studied archaeology and I quit when I realized, oh, you know, there's probably not a lot of jobs in this. But now I realize there would be economic models to be an archaeologist, um, you know, whether it is, you know, providing, um, going to different councils and doing different work, you know. We, we had a great archaeological excavation at the Maribor Open House one year at the original Maribor site. So I always tell children that, you know, don't think about, you know, just going, just, your dreams in terms of what job will be available because if you know if you love something and if you it's something you're really interested in you'll find work we're we're in unusual times with covid how has your leadership role changed in this time we are in extraordinarily unusual circumstances right now um, and right around the world i think the national government and state government has done extraordinarily well in terms of prioritizing public safety and the countries that haven't prioritized public safety, their economies are even in worse situation than we are. Uh, my role, you know, I think we very early recognized the need to close facilities down, to keep people socially distant, and to continue to to put forward those public health measures. And we've come, the Fraser Coast, the Y Bay and Queensland have come through this crisis extraordinarily well. We're certainly not through it, but... There was no modeling, there was no um, analysis at the start that envisaged us being in as good a situation as we are in now in terms of deaths, in terms of confirmed cases, in terms of um, businesses. I want to show you some leaders throughout the world and I want you to give me your feedback on what sort of leadership style they have and what you like about their leadership or what you don't like about yeah. their leadership. So the first one is Barack Obama. Well, he's so inspiring, um, such a gifted writer and, and speaker. I, I think he's inspiring for people in so many different ways. And, you know, I'm really, you know, su such an impressive individual for what he, what, what he did um, and for what, the, um, for what, he, what he projected. Jacinda Ardern. Yeah, a, a fantastic um, leadership style of intelligence, kindness, and being interested in the lives of individuals. She's um, what New Zealand, you know, deserves as a great country, um, you know, going into the next, you know, generation. We know that COVID is going to change the world. We know that it's very, you know, it's going to be a long time before we get back to normal. But I'd want, you know, a leader like her will help define New Zealand. And, you know, I don't think you could look for someone with better values to help ensure a country comes through the crisis more connected um, and, you know, valuing individuals better. Donald Trump? A very poor choice. But democracy does not give you the best outcome always. Um, you know, if Donald Trump was in Harry Potter, he'd be in Slytherins. If he was in Game of Thrones, he'd be in House Bolton. I think, you know, there's, you know, anybody who's, seen a bully in school recognizes it immediately but there's something there that he doesn't just want to beat his opponents he wants to make them suffer um and it's it's horrible to see especially to go from president obama to him is um such a horrific um con contrast and to see that his opponent hillary clinton was one of the most qualified candidates ever having been a senator for new york having been secretary of state so it's um it's Pretty, it's pretty tragic. Um, and I think it also demonstrates that it's the individual, not the leadership role they hold. You know, just because you hold a leadership role doesn't, doesn't instantly make you intelligent or kind or a good person. 
the Queen. Yeah, Queen Elizabeth um, II. I think, you know, her life has been remarkable. I think she was, um, she ascended to the throne in 52 and was coronated in 53. So in that time, you know, so many prime ministers and presidents have come and gone. Wars have been waged. And through that time, she's been, you know, a beacon of stability. I certainly don't believe in hereditary rule. I think we should have a president and the UK should have a president. But if you're going to have to um, have a monarchy, if you're going to have somebody, you know, appointed because of birthright, and she's it, uh, the Queen Elizabeth, I think she's been a very good source of stability in a very unstable world. And I think I'm um, looking at her, I think it talks a bit about leadership in terms of being ready um, and being adaptable to change and um, being, being, you know, resilient. She is queen because her dad was King George VI, I think, King George VI. He only became king because Edward VIII, um, who when he was the Prince of Wales, visited Maribor, because Edward VIII met and fell in love with Wallace Simpson, a divorced American, he had to abdicate. So he left, um, and he left being king for his brother because he wanted to marry Wallace Simpson. And if that hadn't happened, if he didn't have to abdicate, if, if Edward um, could have married Wallace and had children, you know, George and his children, including Elizabeth, they would be minor roles that we would hardly ever hear of. But because of Edward falling in love with Wallace, um, and abdicating, then George became king and his daughter became queen. So it's, you know, it's about circumstances beyond our control define so much of our lives. We talked a little bit about conflict mm -hmm. and you said you don't like it. What is it that bothers you about conflict? Um, I just avoid it at all costs, really. Um, I, it, I just don't like the frame of mind it puts you in when, you know, you have a, a contrary um, view to somebody else and you're both trying to push that view. It's, it's strange that you don't like conflict. Two of the jobs that I guess you've leaned towards, one being in law and the other being in politics, both are very much adversarial roles. Uh, why did you choose those career paths if conflict is something you really want to avoid? Yeah, it's, it's a pretty tricky question. Um, I think I wanted to make change um, and, I, you know, and I, I quickly learned how, how to you know, distance yourself from conflict, you know, both actually distancing and and not getting involved in conflict, but also internally. Um, I, you know, I know that when I'm, you know, debating somebody in a court or in council, that it's not personal. You know, we're not fighting about something personal. We're we're fighting about issues that we both care about. And that's you know, sort of a coping mechanism, but it's also a way of you know, efficiently go about my job. From the outside looking in, you seem to really enjoy conflict in the chamber when you're arguing. Uh, for your point in relation to a motion that's put up in the chamber uh, at a council meeting, you seem to enjoy that. Is that the case? Yeah, I think I do. Yeah, sometimes when it's in that, so you, you have to be in the right mindset to enjoy conflict and you have to really believe in what you're arguing for. But um, I think politics and law gives you the opportunity to advocate, to um, to actually try and make a difference. And, you know, if if you can find something that you enjoy doing, you should do it. Um, you know, it's a lot of the time in council we're dealing with quite mundane things, but occasionally, you know, it, it's something that, you know, raises passions on both sides. Do you think most councillors understand that conflict in the chamber shouldn't transcend to conflict out of the chamber? 
Yeah, and, and um, I think we're pretty good at that. Um, people I have are, you know, great arguments with immediately afterwards we'll have a cup of coffee. Um, I think people understand, and that's perhaps why it's good to have an actual physical location for those debates, where, you know, such as a courtroom or a council chambers or a parliament house, because, you know, you know if, if we weren't having debates by democracy, you'd be having them, you know, by fistfight. So it's really important that people, um, you know, recognize that, you know, a voting system is a way of resolving conflicts, you know, settling disputes in a nonviolent manner. Is there anyone that you can think of that you didn't enjoy debating against in the chamber or that you really enjoyed the opportunity to debate against? Mm. Well, I certainly didn't enjoy debating you because you'll be too prepared or consider an argument that nobody else had thought of. So that was difficult. I guess I'd prefer, um, you know, debating people who weren't so sure of their position, you know, who were led by emotion more. You know, that's a, a better way of, you know, if you're, if you've come, if you're going, if you've got your facts and you've got your, you know, the law lined up, it's a problem if somebody else has a completely, you know, you know, is come prepared as well with a different line of thought. It's interesting you say that because for me, arguing against you was probably the most enjoyable part of it because you were prepared. Yeah. Because you had a strong argument and because it would be hard because it would be like, I, I guess, competing against the best. Yeah. Um, not saying that any of my other previous colleagues weren't yeah. as good, but certainly that debate was an enjoyable mm -hmm. part of the job for me. Yeah. Did you see it the same way? Yeah, but I guess I like it easier contests. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, yeah, I think, I think um, that, that was a lot of fun, you know, being able to test arguments, yeah. How do you, how do you cope with uh, colleagues who weren't able to separate the argument from the personality? Yeah, that's always going to be a difficulty, but it's like in any workplace, um, you know, a key to success, you know, whether you're working in an office, you know, a government department or in politics is being able to um, understand someone's motivation um, and not allow them to get under your skin. If I mean, if you, if you if you allow somebody, you know, to who disagrees with you, who doesn't like you to occupy your headspace, you know, that's what you'll be thinking about instead of the next goal. I've always found, you know, you know, do this, what's next? You've just got to, you know, if you want to achieve things, you can't allow yourself to be tied up by other people's emotions. We've got a question from Harry Woodley mm -hmm. who talks about conflict, particularly from a sporting perspective. So I want to play that for you now. Hi, I'm Harry and I play football in the wide bay and I'm captain of my team. And sometimes I need to like tell the players what they need to do better and what they can improve on. And I was just wondering how I can do that better without ruining friendships or like hurting any of the relationships in the team. Great question. Yeah, it is a great question. And Harry, it really shows why you've been chosen as captain for your team and why you make a great captain is that you care about um, those around you and you want them to have a good experience and you want them to feel good about themselves. And that's why you are captain is because you have that interest in them. And I think, um, you know, if you just make that clear to them that, you know, what you're speaking to them about is so that they can reach their full potential, so they can be, they can be the best part of the team that they can be. I think that is, um, you know, a great start, and that's that's the foundation upon which to build on. I think, you know, if you start from the foundation of caring about other people, you know, that that you'll go on to good things. So I, I'll just m make sure that when you're speaking to them, when you're, you know, giving them advice and direction, that they know it's, you know, in their, it, for them. Know, for them to reach their full potential. 
So this little superstar is Piper, and she is a gymnast and not just a gymnast. She's an outstanding gymnast. Yeah, I know Piper. You know Piper? Yeah. You want to say hello to Piper? Hello, Piper. All right, she's going to say hello to you. One second. Hi, George. Thank you for letting me ask a question. My question is, I love doing gymnastics, and I train really hard. I really want to go to the Olympics one day. If I don't, will all the hard work still pay off? That is a, a fantastic question, Piper. Um, and I know how hard you work. I follow you on Instagram and it is such a, such a deep question. It applies to everything in life. It is fantastic to have goals. Um, and, but what matters is the journey by going through, by, by, by sort, by really focusing on that goal, whether you had achieved or not, you're doing amazing things. And I think, you know, that that's what life is about. It's about trying your best and putting everything in and, you know, even if you come up short, I think what you'll see at the time is was what you were doing at the time that matters. A lot of people, you know, they, they could be, you know, in acting training, they always look to the future. They think, oh, one day I'm going to make it there. But looking back, they were there. It was when they were on the stage performing and people, whether they were out on the field, on the court, that's when they were there. That was what the achievement was. And so, you know, always have big goals, always look to the future. But I know you'll, you'll find looking back, you know, I'm, 41 now I look back on my life and it's it was in the endeavor it was in the journey in the company and what you were doing at the time not necessarily the end it's interesting you've come and watched the Buccaneers play the football team for the wide bay with me sat on the bench with some of the other young players and watching them run out and play football for their region it they will look back at that moment and think that they are some of the best memories of their lives it's not necessarily whether they make Brisbane Raw, or they go overseas and become professional footballers. That moment there is the special moment that they should hold on to. That's right. I mean, to, to represent your community, to go out, you know, in that shirt with the club insignia on it, you know, that that is a really special thing. And they'll, they'll look on it when they're our age, they'll look back on it and know, you know, that they, they had a community around them. They had parents, as I, I know Piper does, <laughs> who, you know, have her, her interests in heart um, they have coaches, they're volunteers, they're part of something really big. Um, and, you know, competing at your gymnastics club, competing at state championships, you know, it's a remarkable thing. And it'll serve you really well in later life, you know, the practice, dedication, competition. Those are the, you know, the attributes that'll come out in whatever you do. So our next question comes from Millie and she is a netball player. And here is her question. Have you ever second guessed any big decisions you made? We talked a little bit about this before, but it's a really good question, isn't it? Have you ever second-guessed big decisions you've made or ones you're making? Yeah, quite a lot. I mean, you, you always – and that's an important thing is to dissect and learn. Um, and as long as you're learning from, you know, mistakes or decisions, you know, you're moving forward. I think you should always um, – you know, if you don't make mistakes, if you don't, you know, analyse, you know, your actions, you're not really progressing and, and growing. So the next question comes from Dylan, who's a little bit older, and he's in triathlons and football. My name is Dylan, and I do triathlon and football. And my question is, are you born with leadership or can you learn it? A good question, Dylan. I think you can certainly learn it. I think um, very few people are born with anything. I think it's about your, your environment that you're in. There's no natural leaders. It's about people who, um, you know, 
develop an empathy with others and you know want to see them succeed so i think it's very much a, a learned um capacity which is in you know with, within everyone's grasp to be a good leader well it's fair to say that the three topics we're talking about today fear conflict and leadership they're all skills you can learn that's right they're all skills that apply to anything whether you're out in the field whether you're studying whether you're interacting you know with family and friends or your work i think you know People should, you know, I don't read self-help books or, um, you know, follow that, but I do dissect my life. I do look for ways to improve. You know, I set goals at the start of every year and I try and reach, you know, you know, milestones. And you do that by looking at, you know, how things have gone. You know, if, if you're not achieving the results you want, you know, you should look at where you've fallen short and how you can improve. We have one more question and this is from young Ethan. And he is from Scotland and he's a swimmer. Hi, George. My name's Ethan and I'm a swimmer from Scotland. Is fear a bad thing? So Ethan asks for those people who struggle with You shouldn't, George. No, is fear a bad thing? Is fear a bad thing? No. Um, fear is we, we as humans, um, you know, our dogs, all animals have fear as a, an evolutionary response. I guess, um, you know, thinking back to studying psychology, it's about fight or flight, I guess. It's about ensuring that when we're faced with something, you know, I, the, the body gets this chemical reaction that, you know, we talk about fight or flight, that, you know, we suddenly realize a decision has to be made um, or deferred or in some type of action. And so it's a good thing. I think we, and you need to just be aware that you have that fear. You need to be aware of what you're, what's happening with your mind, what you're thinking about. And, um, you know, it's, if you can master it, you know, if you can understand when you're fearful and what's actually happening, I think that is one of the best personal traits you can acquire. And so fear is a good thing. If you're not scared, then you're not really living. Um, you know, if, if, you're not, if you're not losing sometimes, if you're not facing some challenges, you're not pushing yourself. If somebody only ever just, you know, achieved everything they set, set their mind to and they are never scared, you know, I'd, I'd question whether they were actually really doing much they were really certainly wouldn't be pushing themselves if they were never scared. So, you know, a fear, being fearful, losing, um, having setbacks are hallmarks of a life well-lived, of a life of challenge, of a life of seeking to push boundaries. We have another question that came through, but it's not a, it's a written question, so I've got to get it up. Okay, let me read. This is from Martin Doherty, and he says, From one sportsman to another, politics is similar to sport. There are winners and losers. Your role as mayor of the Fraser Coast would resemble coaching or managing a football team. What are some of your tips when dealing with conflict within your team? And how do you demonstrate leadership knowing this conflict exists? Other than losing the election, what was your biggest fear when standing for re-election this year? And what coping mechanisms did you use to ensure the fear of losing didn't enter your thoughts? Some big questions. Yes, lots of questions, yeah. Yes, yeah, a great lot of questions. And, and sport is a lot like politics. Um, and I think about so many different, um, you know, leaders that I've sort of followed in terms of current affairs who lose. Um, you think of all the people who lost their first election. George W. Bush, John Howard, Peter Beattie, Barack Obama lost his first election when he was running for Congress. And if every single one of them, and you know, you can go through almost all successful politicians have lost an election, and many of them, their first election. 
And what that is, Tony Blair lost a number of elections. Um, the, it, it demonstrates the link between losing and success. Those people, they lost early uh, because they were pushing themselves out. They were pushing as hard as they can. Um, so they were, you know, with John Howard, John Howard running for a state seat, Bill Clinton running to be um, the governor of Arkansas or the attorney general of Arkansas or Congress at a very early age um, was because they had a lot of heart and they were living life as hard as they could. And that loss reflects that. You know, and I think, um, you know, that, that's the hallmark of a successful person is they're not afraid to lose. And, you know, that transcends, you know, to all aspects of life. You know, in terms of, you know, my own career, you know, I've, I've always feared losing. I've never felt confident, uh, including this last election. You know, I was very nervous about it. And um, I guess, you know, I coped with it by, by thinking about what I would do if I lost, what, what other career I'd pursue. But it's, you know, it's something that's always in your mind that, you know, in politics you can win or lose. I think that's the same with sport. If you don't make it as a professional athlete, there are other parts of your life that can still be fulfilling. You can go on and achieve and live a very accomplished and happy life, even if your first dream isn't realised. That's right. Um, no, nobody's life turns out the way it planned. I mean, I, when I was growing up, when I was dreaming of being a professional football player or baseball player, I'd never even heard of Queensland. You know, I was growing up in the USA. Life, you know, but the skills I learned, you know, on the basketball court playing for my school, the skills I learned playing, you know, we called it soccer there, playing for the different teams, playing in Arizona and New Mexico and Utah and Colorado, representing my region. Um, those are skills that I carry with me now. You know, I think, you know, sport is where you define like, your character, your sense of teamwork, camaraderie. That's, you know, where you learn it as a young age. And, you know, in dealing with my colleagues and helping them, I think about, you know, what what works on a sporting field. Um, so and that's about empowering people, making sure they're valued and, and you know, give, given the opportunity to do their best. George Seymour, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us in this episode of The Gospel According to Mayor George Seymour. Visit our website at intentsport.com on Facebook or Instagram. You can also subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify.